Maybe she's just not showing up today. <laughs> it is early there. Can you imagine just the show with you and me? We would lose all the listeners. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. What's up, you two? How's it going? Happy October. Yes, happy fall. Happy October to you. Um, um, Halloween already started where you are, yes? Yeah, yeah. There's like decorations and everything. So, you know what else is fun? Christmas has also started. Where? (laughs) I've seen it. I've seen it. People putting up decorations. I think we've reached peak insanity when it comes to holidays. Or it's just peak capitalism. How do we keep hitting peak capitalism? Uh, I think you're misreading the peaks. Um, (laughs) Or maybe what you're you're mistaken for capitalism is, is people's real need to be... Very much surrounded by holiday cheer in <laughs> whatever form it needs, it needs to take. So the more depressing the year is, the earlier Christmas comes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That'd be interesting to do a study on that. Like, that would be. If, depending on how things are going politically and economically, does that correlate with how early people put decorations up? That's a really interesting <laughs> hypothesis. Someone in my neighborhood fully has like the decorations out now a lot of people have put up halloween decorations which then morph into thanksgiving decorations and morph into christmas no this house was like you know what let's not waste any time santa is up there are reindeer and i'm like it is october because i passed lights yesterday and i was like wait christmas lights and then the woman's like no halloween lights i was like (laughs) and you're like what this is how but, greeting cards, right? It's like, what? Birthday card? Mother's Day card? Like, now we get cards for everything. Just Literally everything. Oh, I think I just saw a news story about that. It was something about, like, a card, but it was actually, like, a fat shaming card. It was like, oh, you're losing weight. Something. And I was like, wait a minute. You're losing weight. Congratulations, because you were gross before. Oh Welcome to the party. I actually think I just heard a business opportunity we'd probably be really good at, which is like mean greeting cards. Like, no, can we not do any more mean anything? I, I just mean. Let's just try to be uh, everyone right now. I'm just so over mean. The size that we're on on this on this conversation, I would have expected you two would be for the mean cards. No, you know what? I um RuPaul's Drag Race had a, a new United Kingdom edition because. RuPaul enjoys money and she's going to cash all those checks. Anyway, like the show has the exact same format as the American show, even though British culture and British drag is really different. So they're trying to manufacture drama and backstabbing and the sniping and it kind of falls flat. And also I realized maybe I've just grown out of it, but I was like, do I want to watch strangers bitching at each other? Like enough with the mean, like I want everything to be like the great British bake off. People come together they enjoy themselves in competition, then they move on. <laughs> I was just about to say they should try that approach to the RuPaul's Drag Race. By the way, RuPaul, your fave is very problematic for a lot of folks. No, okay. I need to distance myself from RuPaul. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, I don't know. I, know. I haven't followed RuPaul. What's going you on? You know, RuPaul started off as like this zero fucks, gender queer, gender fuck drag queen in the village in Atlanta years ago. But over the years, he has amassed enough money and fame that he is now a rich white woman. Uh, (laughs) And has all the opinions of a rich old white woman. And he's extremely problematic if you ask him about trans stuff, just about racism. I mean, his idea about racism can be summed up in sort of like, oh, get over it. Everyone's just joking. Like, it's like RuPaul people out here dying. Oh, stop it. I know. It's really inter- it's really fascinating to watch because you would have because bef- in back in the day, RuPaul was was our culture's edge. Right. But I now don't... there's a whole different edge and he's not evil. He's not he's not I mean, even able to nowhere near it. it. And like even to embrace it or, you know, that's a really weird evolution to me. (laughs) I I remember a a conversation Jason had with you back in the 90s about the RuPaul song, If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man. Yes. Do you remember that? In Boston. Yes, I remember you playing RuPaul's album in Boston. I still remember those songs vividly, yeah. 
And it, you were like, whoa, like it just blew your mind. Like the, just the whole gender fuckery of it. Like it was so edgy back then. And now it's like you said, Trisha, she could not be further from the edge. Like just. Well, I mean, actually, and it's interesting to me because was it just transactional for her then? You know what? Because we don't know her, yeah, we'll never know. No. I think because it's she should age. be the most vocal. She should be the Mm-mm. most vocal advocate on some level. And Maybe I'm it's... she, but I, and I'm transitioning pronouns because I don't even know because I'm taking yeah. my. You can call me he. You can call me she. You can call me Regis and Kathy Lee. Wait, as long as, as, long long as you call me. me. <laughs> you, that's right. It's a RuPaul quote. <laughs> yes, Jason. You know which what? I learned and from it, you, Chris. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't something at her core then. Or, I mean, well, I don't know. Or you get old and you get rich. You get rich, right? I mean, this is reminding me of our conversation about comedians, right? Like, yeah. people get power and all of a sudden things different. It's, um, what's that? Um, oh, I'm forgetting. There's that saying about, like, a conservative. Oh, a conservative is a liberal who got mugged. You know, like, <laughs> like things happen in life and people gravitate to different points of view. And then they and, say and, a liberal is a conservative who went to jail. Yeah. I have to say, though, that when your life has less friction, you can forget that it had friction at all. You certainly can. And it happens, I think, far faster than people imagine. This is so this is so resonant. I was thinking um this is reminding me of so many things that came up last night. I went to um I went to a talk between Tanahisi Coates and Ryan Kugler. And you're, just, you're just bragging now, by the way. I know. Ahead. How's bragging camp? Yeah, I, mean, really... I, mean, I happened to. I happened, I was chatting with my good friends the other no, day. No, not even. Yeah. I went the to parlor. a talk. But you know what? Everyone's always saying that. I'm like, guess what? I live in Los Angeles. Lots of people come here. You too, if you live in a cool city, can go out and see these folks. We're just know? jealous. <laughs> that's what, <laughs> that's what this is coming from. I'm super jealous. But that's it was, all. It was really but anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. What I thought was really noteworthy. First of all, I mean, Tanahisi is just like, again, thank you for coming coming back. I felt like he's been off my radar and he's back again. Um, so I always love to listen to him. But he was talking about sort of the mythology that um, lives around people who have wealth and access to things. But then real, the real life in some ways is happening in the muck. The folks that are down in the gut, you know, in the gutter in some ways, right? So it's like for you, you're saying it's like your life becomes frictionless and you just completely maybe lose track of what was happening. Even though the perception is that is when your life gets um, frictionless, you'll probably take more risk. It's actually the opposite. Like when you have more money, you you, sh- you should be able to hold like even more extreme views in some ways because it should like bolster you up to know that no one's going to come and take everything from you. Yeah. But instead, no, was- it makes you super cautious, which is really strange to me. But I almost get it, too. It's like, you know, maybe more to lose, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, it's so funny. It reminds me. I remember a Deepak Chopra quote where he said. Something like, you know, people who aren't rich want to get rich and they think they'll feel more secure. But he's like, the rich people I know are some of the most insecure people because they're afraid of losing everything. Yeah. that's So maybe that's it. Maybe if you're on a journey from poor to rich, the amount well, of friction, that the frictionless life you're enjoying just serves to further remind you how much friction there was before. So it's not like you forget that there was friction. It's that you're, you become afraid of it. Yeah. The and you're willing is, to yeah. nod your head and agree with whatever as long as you can keep your frictionless life. It, another thing I'm reminded of, this is not exactly the same thing, but I, I can remember, I haven't thought about this in forever, but years ago, I think when George H.W. Bush was running for re-election, I remember, I think it was the Philadelphia Inquirer did a story about how many of the Philadelphia Eagles um, were you know, African-Americans who um, had, you know, had, were, had made their way out of poverty who were supporting George H.W. Bush. And um, and it was like real simple. It was like tax bracket. They were yep. just like, uh, I just I just started making all this money and uh, I don't want, you know, I don't want more of it to be taken away from me. Um, it was very interesting. It's disappointing. I, I don't know. I, I, well, I was it's funny. I was just thinking about RuPaul this morning. And I was just thinking, like, it's the last person that you'd want to ask about race or gender or trans issues. And how did it be that the most famous drag queen in the most famous black black drag queen queen (laughs) in the world can't be asked about those things and doesn't have a take that is fresh? That's just, it's weird. It's not like Ellen, though. 
Remember Ellen? Ellen's coming out. All of the angst around that, and now you wouldn't want to ask Ellen Yo, about any of that. Can we, before we jump into topics, can we mini topic on this Ellen best friends <laughs> yes. with George yes. Bush thing? Yes. I really want to know where what you two think about that. <laughs> I feel like I'm out. I feel like I've been listening to the news a lot. I once again have no idea what you're talking about. I honestly don't know how you're on a podcast about culture. I honestly don't know. <laughs> we have to educate you about everything. Like literally. So a, a picture went out of George W. Bush and Ellen enjoying a baseball game, just laughing, laughing, I presume about money. In any case, it went viral <laughs> and everyone's like, how could you be friends with this war criminal? Then she, you know, Ellen, cause she can be a bit tone deaf. Like we talked, we had a yeah, topic yeah. about her uh, last set, last season. She comes out on her show and she's like, it's fine to be, when I said to be kind to everyone, I meant everyone, not just the people with the same views. And you can be friends with people who hold really different views from you and da da da, da. Um, So that's what happened. And people are now reacting as we, I'm asking you to react. So react, Trisha. I think the thing that I hate with Ellen and the way that people do this stuff is the conflating. Nice to people is not the same as being really thoughtful about how people have been detri- how people's policies and their actions have detrimentally impacted whole communities like i i feel like they sort of like um they flatten this whole conversation into be you're being like a meanie like you're mean like that's not what people are talking about like people are not saying to her that she should be rude to George Bush or not talk to him or any of those kinds of things. But just like her response and the sort of lack of thoughtfulness. And I put it on my Facebook page and people are like, what about the golden mean? And I was like, listen, not to dictators. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, I just, I, it's like, I, 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 I do want to point out you eased George W. Bush into a no. box that I don't know. I mean, no, no, I'm not saying that, but okay. I mean, I just think what I'm saying is that people want to assume that they have relationships with individuals who are um, outside of the box of who they are, right? Like, George Bush is just the man. No, we only access him as the president, mm-hmm. as a former president. That's our only relationship. Who made certain him. decisions that have and lasting impact. who made certain impact. decisions. Like, yes, of course, he's a grandfather and a this and a that and a that. But those are not our relationships with him. And you can't put that on me. Like, I'm really only experiencing him as a citizen. Oh, that's interesting. I see what you mean now. Do you know oh, what I mean? That's very interesting. Because what so she's again, it's to, so her response is he's yeah. your neighbor. He's like your neighbor. He's not my neighbor. <laughs> and and her response to it completely ignores what you're saying, which is like you are a public person. You are addressing me, right. and you have to understand that my relationship with George W. Bush is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, so entirely. Yeah. You tr- you trying to find yours? Like we're just we're talking past each other. No, and she's like, he's just my buddy. And I'm like, okay, he's your buddy who also had access to an office that allowed him to do egregious things in many people's eyes. And when people call you out on it, you can't just dismiss it and tell them, why can't we be nice? What? Jason? Oh, man. I don't know where to start. Would you be friends with George W. Bush? No, sure. For the tickets. (laughs) That that was a quick 180. (laughs) Not with me if I get tickets. <laughs> Talk about transactional, Trisha. That's all it is. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this conversation fits into we had a conversation about Ellen, you know, a while back, and like it's you know the whole relatable thing, right? Like she can get along with everyone. Um, it just sounds like part and parcel of that. I also just remind us. Even people who, you know, back when it was like, why are people voting for him? It was like, well, he's the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with. I mean, this sounds like that kind of thing, right? Like, I find his views odious, but he's sure a fun guy to hang out with. I'm thinking about what you said, Trisha. I think if I was from George W. Bush, I wouldn't defend it publicly in the terms that Ellen is defending it. As I'm really vibing with what you're saying, you can be friends with George W. Bush, but then to laud him understanding that your audience experiences him. She doesn't understand that we experience him differently than she might experience him. Yeah, That's very interesting. Let's jump into topics. Jason? I would like to talk about whether Congress should exercise its right to jail people who are in contempt of Congress. And I'm thinking about during kind of the Mueller probe, there were things that the Democrats in Congress were 
requesting and even sending subpoenas for, including like President Trump's tax return, that there's a very clear law in the books says that the Treasury will share tax returns. And basically, the administration said, we're not sharing it because we don't think you're going to use it for anything but a political reason, which the law does not have any accommodations like that. Well, if it's for a political reason, you don't share it. And so my understanding is Congress absolutely has the power and the means to arrest someone who is in contempt of Congress, and yet they have not exercised that. So they've sent all these subpoenas. Many of them have gone unanswered. I think they're litigating in the court. But it's been frustrating to watch because you see people in the administration breaking the law and at least thus far not really facing any accountability. And so my question to you two is, do we think that's a power that Congress should exercise? And the last thing I'll say before I turn it over is I've heard you know, commentators when they raise this, well, yes, they have that power, but we are – the thing I've heard is like we are not a country where you know we – fight political fights by throwing people in jail. There are countries who do that, where leaders get locked up, and we don't want to be that country. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on on this. One of the things that this administration has exposed to me is how much of government is by your leave, right? Yeah. Sort of just by habit and just the general agreement about how things are going to go. It's been eye-opening to me how much you can flout the law how little of the law actually surrounds what I understand now are just conventions, really. When you first suggested this topic, I was like, well, this is a slippery slope. If we're going to start arresting Congress people, then who's doing the arresting? Who's making the laws? Who's adjudicating that? Because I'm, I'm afraid of that that could get wildly out of control based on whoever's in that particular seat of power. Would it be the speaker? Would Nancy Pelosi be signing off on arresting people? And how does that not immediately become partisan? Yep. I think there's a lot of issues with that. That said, you know I love consequences and responsibility. <laughs> and if you are asked to present something you don't, there has to be a consequence. Otherwise, the entire system will fail. Now, no one has to do anything, which pretty much defines our Congress for the past 10 years. <laughs> but I think, that's, I think that's part of the problem. Like, is there a way to get them to cooperate that doesn't involve jailing them? Is there something about their seat or their position? Or since this is, this is America, their funding? Is there something that we can do to impel them to cooperate? I mean, I think that's my sense of it. It's like, listen, if we're only held together by fear of jail time, then I think our system's a little bit dodgier than than anything else, right? Like if that's really it's all so that true. prod someone to do the right thing, <laughs> I think we have a really big problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, do we not have any other means to compel people to act in the best interests of their office? Well, you know, it's a it's a great question, and I, I and I'm I'm processing what both of you said. One thing, and I know we don't we try not to, and I don't want to like dwell so much on the president. But like one thing I think, and this is I think an extension of what you were saying, Chris, one thing we see more clearly than ever, although I think we all had a sense of it before, is that in this country, if you have enough money to pay lawyers, you can get away with just about anything, right? Like you can do all manner of things and you lawyer up and you jam the system and you get away with stuff. And we've seen that in private life a ton you know, mm -hmm. I feel like The Simpsons discovered this many years ago and had great, you know, great uh, skits about it or whatever, great segments about it. But to actually see it operating in the federal government, right, where even when we're talking about like acting in public service, that even there you can break the law and then get away with it by lawyering up both publicly and privately and and that kind of thing. It really calls into question and what you were saying, like what you were saying, Chris, is like it, it. if you have a law and people, some people don't have to follow it, the system really breaks down. And I think, Tricia, what you said, I mean, it does make a lot of sense. Like, yes, it, it's no kind of healthy society where people behave only out of fear of going to jail. And yet I have to say, and I can be a pretty, you know, black or white rule follower type of person, but the alternative right now looks like you just get away with it. And we have these folks, they tend to be kind of very wealthy people in the government who are just getting away with stuff that are detrimental to our country. 
and they're just getting away with it. And, and, and that also sets a precedent, right? Because if now it's like, oh, well, we had these laws on the books. Again, this law seems so clear about Congress requests a tax return, the Treasury shares it. If that simple of a law can be flouted, then it seems like whatever administration, we're with a despicable one now, but we're just going to see this. I just worry, like, are we going to see this again and again where the, the lesson that people are going to take away is you can get away with doing anything once you're elected. Well, I mean, listen, I hate, to, I hate to ask this, but isn't this the whole idea of being governed by consent? Like, if we consent to you follow your, you know, like, if we consent to follow your laws, then we're being, we're, we're okay. But if I choose to say that these laws don't relate to me, I mean, what, what are, what other recourse do you have? That's the block, right? That is the block. Uh, I mean, jail. <laughs> okay, but, but now here we are. <laughs> is why jail is there I another mean, stop before jail though yeah, like, like how can we impel thing. people to participate in this community that i think that's the question that it really interests me like sure we can round people up humans have been doing that from time immemorial yeah. but it, we always go there like is there another way to make people participate or is the construction of making them participate already problematic already problematic or the question the thing is the thing for me is like are we just talking about pushing paper right because the question is you have been asked to deliver something because it's part of a larger question right it's it's part of establishing whether you've broken the law or not or whether it's or maybe it's like a chain of evidence really they just need they're building a case and they need your participation they need to compel you to participate um i just don't know if jail feels like a solution there it feels like what we have to say is like it can't i mean maybe what we're doing is we're but then maybe I'll, I'm about to talk myself out of it because maybe all your structures are flawed. Because, I mean, it, 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 the evidence can't just come from one person, right? <laughs> it could come from others, right? Mm. Right? It can't just come from the individual. There's I mean, a, you know, if I'm getting your taxes, who, who prepares your taxes? Someone has it. I don't have to compel and get it from you. I can get it from some other structure, can I? Can I compel the IRS to share it with me? <laughs> Well, no, but I mean, that what you're asking, I think the answer is no. I think what they realized is they can only, I mean, IRS is part of the Treasury. They can yep. only get it from the Secretary of the Treasury. And if that person's saying no, then they can't get it. Well, see, well then that person should be removed from the position. Yeah. See, that's a I mean, I think, right there. I think that's it. So maybe not jail, but it's like the, as the Secretary of the Treasury, these are your duties. If you do not perform your duties, you'll be relieved of your duties. Well, that 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 makes sense. I'll just say that that only works ultimately because let's just play that out, right? So if Congress had the power, they don't. But if they had the power to remove an appointee, then maybe they could. But if ultimately it's the president who's telling his appointees, which it sounds like is the case, do not you know do not follow the law, then I guess you end up with impeachment and removal from office. So yes. I think I think what you just said, Chris, makes sense. If the system will do what it's supposed to do and actually remove the president in that in that instance ultimately but we can never would but you know this is what's fascinating about this moment is how robust is this system how robust is, has this system been constructed and what are um what are the holes that are being made apparent and how do you fill those holes cuz i mean you can't i think you're right at the end of the day what you end up with is just basically a bunch of people in jail that doesn't seem like a compelling solution, right? <laughs> because you can easily imagine that flipping next time. And it's like, well, you arrested us. Time for me to arrest you. I mean, yeah, every right. every you down two this... years. Yeah, every you know? two years, it's mass arrests on the Hill. <laughs> and there are countries like that. And yeah, I agree. That's probably where exactly. we're going to end up. But I mean, what, what people have said or the story that people have told me about America is that America is a land of laws and people felt compelled to follow the laws because they believed in those laws. Flouting those laws suggests to me that you probably shouldn't be in the office if there's a requirement that you follow and proceed in your job. I mean, listen, if, if my boss came to me and asked me for something that is a part of my job description and I chose not to do it, I think I might not have a job and I should expect not to. And that's the same for the president, as you said, Jason. I mean, that's what impeachment is for. I can't imagine a time in American history where we'll ever remove a president from office because the it's two thirds of Congress, 
or three fourths of Congress. I mean, good luck, especially where we are politically today. But you should be able to be fired from your job. I think if there's anything to learn from this moment, it's that we need to firm up what was previously conventions with actual laws and consequences. And the the branches of government that over the past 15 years, 15? Since when was 9-11? Yeah. So over the past 20 years, there's been a consolidation of power in the executive branch. And now we're seeing the problem with that. Consequences of that. Because there's very little that Congress can do. And, and with that consolidation has also become the uselessization of Congress. That's a word. Uselessization. <laughs> I love that word. That's great. To, to, <laughs> they can't get anything done. They stopped passing laws altogether. And they instead they take all their time to fundraise and then fight. So with this combination is the problem. And how do we fix it? How do we start fixing it? And that's the question I've been asking myself a lot lately. Congress is a just dead arm of government. It's not doing anything anymore. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know if it's a, I mean, I think this is also a philosophical, I mean, this sounds strange to say, but it's also a philosophical question, right? I mean, these structures are supposed to be built on an assumption about what it is that all three um, parts of government are supposed to do. But I think what you end up having is a sort of acquisition of power has been the the place that people have rested, not in sort of executing their duties. And Congress has been sidestepped. Congress has been sidestepped in this process. Like they're they're now the weakest form of government. That's why these like landmark cases keep up coming in front of the Supreme Court is because they can't legislate anymore. So now what we have is a president who's elected by a minority who appoints Supreme Court justices and then sort of ham fist their way through Congress, then they're sitting on that bench for life. And because we don't pass laws anymore, then everything is just up for debate for these nine individuals. It's massive amount of power. It's, it's crazy. Nine. The legislative branch, like the, the representative part has, has just been chopped out or yeah, is being chopped out. I'm being dramatic. It is being chopped out because of the useless utilization that I talked about earlier. Hashtag. <laughs> I want to say how you spell that. But also possibly helpful. Because if. What? Well, no, listen. But think about the larger picture. The larger picture is that I think a lot of very powerful people don't want representational government. Anymore. Oh, sure. Sure. They don't, because, they, because they think the people in the United States are not the ones they want to represent it anymore. Right? And so if. So be, by, by being able to circumvent Congress. <laughs> you essentially circumvent the very power, power to the people. Mm -hmm. I do want to just say, well, I, this is not agreement <clears throat> with anything either of you said. I just want to point out part of the dynamic you're describing, Congress has done to itself as well. It hasn't just been presidents seizing power. Congress, you know, they don't want to take tough votes because they don't want to get elected out of office. Like that's part of the problem. They don't want to lose their jobs. So, do you, is this is this is this an argument for term limits? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I'm trying to say we should throw everyone in jail. You two are taking somewhere else. So you tell yeah, me. I mean, I can't believe you. I know. I'm not. A, we're not going to be jail people. We're not jailing people. We're I not mean, people no, thank you. Because you know, if we start doing this, we go. What we're going to jail people for? I mean, debt. I think they already started that again. So yeah. <laughs> jail is not the solution for every problem <laughs> it cannot of be of course i agree with that i'm not usually not pro incarceration i'm just i don't know the solution here I, i'm like i'm pro consequences yeah. but those consequences cannot be like do this or you'll no longer be a free person that it's just too yeah the balance of that is wild okay so <laughs> we didn't solve that one <laughs> is that what this show's about solving problems <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the next topic. So I wanted to ask you both. Uh, my top level question is, can white people do diversity, equity, and inclusion work? You know, all three of us have been working in nonprofits in around diverse people. And a lot of the work that the three of us have touched on before is working in and around organizations trying to increase ex equity and diversity and inclusion. And I wanted to open this discussion to ask this question because 
I mean, one, I have my own opinions, but I think what I'm wondering is that can white people be successful in dismantling uh, or in, in heading an organization to dismantle white supremacy? And if they are successful, what does that look like? What's the measure and rubric? And what are the challenges that they face? And also, what are the challenges that people of color face working with white people in this organization? That's a question I'm throwing out to you too. What do you think? I don't know the answer. I wish I did. I can say as a you know white male, white, straight white male, I, I participated in and in some cases kind of led some organizational efforts to try to improve when it came to race equity, diversity, and inclusivity. I can say I, I, a lot of the training that I received and participated in alongside colleagues, I thought was very helpful. I heard from other people it was very helpful, but it's, it's so challenging because you are trying to potentially undermine, as you said, white supremacy and, and that dynamic, and yet you're operating within that dynamic. So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling. I think I think it's really hard. Like, I don't know the answer whether it's possible. I definitely think, you know, it's better to be in an organization where the organization's trying to do it than completely complicit in its, you know, white supremacy and perpetuation of societal inequity. But I have to admit, like, I, in preparing for this, I was thinking of, like, what's a great example out there of a company or an organization or a government agency that engaged in this work and now is, like, known to be really, really, you know, good when it comes to race equity, uh, diversity, and inclusivity. And I don't know of one. It doesn't mean there's not one, but I can't name one. I always think about those things in the context of training, right? Because I think you do more in terms of talking about it sometimes than actually fully executed it in practice, right? So you might have policies that you as a company has worked on to identify what you mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then you then spend your time communicating that to staff. And then the question for me then always becomes, how, how does the rubber meet the road? Because for me, it's like going to a, what are those things with, that they usually pull? It's not a training, but it's like, um, it's like it generally has like some kumbaya elements to it. So, you know, you go in, you're meant to sort of like come together as employees, you feel a sense of camaraderie and all this great stuff. Team building. Yeah, like those team building or a baby things. shower. I'm not both. I'm not no, saying. no, like team building. <laughs> Which yeah, one are you like talking one about? Of those retreats, you know, when it's oh, an okay. actual staff retreat. When it's a it's a staff retreat. I like to think of those. I like to think of DEI issues c coming up in parallel to sort of like staff retreats, where you go, the company says all the right things, you feel this sense of like um, community, and then you go back to your workspace, and it's completely different than what was introduced at the staff retreat. So I think about that in the same way with trainings. Like you'll have this very comprehensive DEI training, but then when it's time for you to say advertise for a position, it goes through the same exact networks that it always goes through <laughs> to ensure that you're still going to get the exact same people. So, I mean, in terms of like preparing for this kind of conversation, I was like, well, can we like be clear what we mean about those three things? Like, what do you all, what do you all take those three things to mean and um, where do they intersect? Because diversity, equity, inclusion, I think sometimes people blend them, but they're obvious. They're not meant to be blended. They're meant no, to be they're not distinct. Same. It's interesting, even like the terms we're using, because, and Trisha and Chris, I think you both said like diversity, equity, and inclusion. For me, it's always been important to say like race equity, diversity, and inclusivity, like ready work is what I have called it. That's led to some interesting conversations about like, why is it, you know, people are often like, why has it got to be about race? Why are we talking about all kinds of equity? And it's like, well, the most fundamental inequity in our country happens to be racial inequity. There are certainly other inequities. But anyway, so I think when it comes to equity or race equity, that's when there's, you know, true equity of opportunity, people's opportunities to get access to professional development, access to promotions. Um, in terms of how you, as you were using in your example, Tricia, how you recruit, where you recruit, what kind of networks you tap into, you know, those are all, e equity is a part of that. Also, you know, policies um, ensuring that people have equitable access to all different kinds of benefits, which often takes a lot of proactive work. That is not necessarily the first thought of an organization. When it comes to diversity, to me, diversity is, <laughs> this will sound terrible, but a little more vanilla, right? It's like, valuing that you have people from all different backgrounds, valuing those backgrounds themselves. I, I mean, policy is a part of all of this, but I think when I think about the equity, that's where policy needs to be very thoughtful and very proactive. 
Um, but there's a lot of work to do in diversity as well. And inclusivity to me, or inclusion, is really about you know thinking about who's at the table when you make certain decisions. Um, how are you, again, proactively making sure different voices are represented, different people are a part of different processes? Those are my first thoughts. So let's say I am a young white woman named Amber. And <laughs> I just graduated from King University in northern New Jersey. And I want to go out there and I want to make the world a more equitable, race equitable place. What is the role of white people in making that happen? And the reason why I'm leaning on that question is that my own experience shows me that when white people end up being the decision makers when it comes to who gets to be at the table, you know, who gets to be in a space, is that they end up recreating the same thing that happens on the macro level and they don't even realize it. And it's difficult to challenge them because the spaces and the spaces at the top end up not being diverse or inclusive. But if you are white, and, and I'm not ready to white to write off all of white people. I guess that's my question is that how do white people get involved in this stuff and actually make an impact instead of just being part of the problem? Well, I mean, I think one of the things when you say white people, is that a short, is that a shorthand for power? Because I think part of equity and inclusion is recognizing that there are power differentials in the in the sort of diverse amalgam of people in your space, right? So first of all, you might achieve diversity in the sense you have lots of different people in in a room, right? So Amber has gone out and done the due diligence and hired a nice mixture of um, uh, religious, ethnic, racial, diverse group of people. However, Amber is the boss, right? And you're trying to have a conversation with Amber about the challenges around equity and inclusion in the workspace. How do you, how does Amber allow herself to hear what's being said by this now very diverse group of individuals when she is um, when she remains in a very powerful position that to me is kind of the the challenge of having white people talk about diversity equity and inclusion is are they sort of conscious of the power that's happening in the space the power differentials that's happening in space and do they know that you're not really going to be able to have an employee speak completely openly about the challenges that they're experiencing in a space that you control so step one, be aware of the power that you hold. Jason? <laughs> Again, I'm just going to identify something. This isn't very helpful. But this is the challenge. I think, I think that, you know, as a, like a white leader who's, who has, a, you know, power in an organization like the one we're talking about, like, like a, an organization like we're talking about, if that person is truly open and truly does value uh, the possible changes that that could occur under the kind of work we're talking about, that could be very powerful. And if they um, were thoughtful about when to let other folks lead for various reasons, that could be pretty powerful. What I struggle with is, I'd hate to think that the change is only going to happen if you know there's a leader that that has those um, inclinations. But I have to say, as I think about it, like how can change happen in an organization? If there isn't a leader that is open and thoughtful in those ways, I'm not sure I know how. I mean, I'm even thinking about like, well, if you had like a, you know, a, kind of a union, you know, like a labor management relationship, the way that unions sometimes do with management, is that a way that, you know, these kinds of values and these kinds of policy changes can, could be, um, you know, enforced or pushed through? But it's hard to imagine that because, again, you know, it's in most cases, labor unions have diverse constituencies and um, often their agendas, you know, don't necessarily focus on those issues. I feel like it has to be entirely independent. What? The initiative. What does that like, mean? I think what does some, that look like? In some sense, it's like you would have to have a body that has been sort of deputized and cannot fall under the auspice of the leader or the manager or anybody else. It almost has to be an external, I mean, an external internal, that's pretty difficult to do, but it, it almost feels like you would want to have um, someone that is entirely independent of um, the boss or the CEO or the human resources department, 
Because otherwise, like, how do you how do you push an organization to do something maybe for its own better where they themselves have to sort of shift? It's hard. I, I, I mean, what you're saying is really interesting. And it, it, it does bring to mind that I think if this kind of work is going to actually take hold and last, it really needs to be driven from like, and I mean, I'm obviously thinking from the typical corporate structure, but like from at the board level. Right. And if a board really buys in, then, you know, the board can do what you're saying, Tricia. Like, it's hard for me to imagine how what you're describing could happen unless it's sanctioned by a board, which, of course, ultimately oversees and holds accountable and, and selects and fires um, the, the CEO. Um, and that actually, now that you say it, I mean, that actually makes me a little bit more optimistic because I think you can potentially organize a board in a way that you can't necessarily organize one person based on their own inclinations. Good luck getting some organization to empower other people to fire the top exec. And that's the problem <laughs> that I'm, that's, that's the thing. problem that I'm trying to highlight here yep. is that there's a lot of mainstream organizations that decide like, Oh, we want to do good work, but end up, they can't make it happen. Case in point, I work for an organization that will remain nameless and <clears throat> They dealt with the public, specifically they dealt with a lot of brown and black people. And the politics that they created in the office with the brown and black people who worked in the office was very injurious. And it was very status quo where the sort of like the white people got to make all the decisions and everyone else just had to go along with it. And it played out in a myriad of ways. One such as like some one of the white people brought their dog into work one day which then led a conversation about who can bring their dogs into work. And then it was like, oh, if you have an office, I guess you can bring in a dog, but guess who mostly had offices? It was little things like that, that they never really understood how this played out. So, you know me, I complained a lot about this sort of thing. And, you know, it turned into this whole thing where they were asking me and some other people to do like lunchtime talks around race and et cetera, et cetera. And I'll tell you, like supervisors would come to these meetings and they'd listen and they'd clap along and they'd be, they'd be like, yes, this is all very important stuff. And then they go back to their offices and make the same decisions that they were making. And at the end of the day, they didn't want to be held accountable. They didn't want to be held responsible. They were very nice white people. And they thought that, you know, being nice was meant they weren't racist. And so that was the end of the conversation. Now I'm not saying they're terrible, terrible people. And it's like you said, Trisha, you know, the, recognizing your power in that situation is one thing, but how do we move people from recognizing your power and to actually be a change agent? Because let me tell you something, I've been working, doing this sort of work for a long time. And uh, it is the rare white person who I can find who is effective in an organization that is structured around diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's very, very rare. And like I said earlier, I don't want to write off all white people because I'm, I very much believe that we can't do anything alone. But I think that we have to find a place for white people in that movement because it's not really their movement, is it? It's really hard to see white supremacy. I mean, for white people. Well, I mean, what do you mean when you say, I mean, we're talking about it in, within a very specific context at work, right? Um, in the broader culture, that's a whole different question. But let's talk about it at work. Jason was saying, you know, the way organizations are structures, structured and the way decisions get made really constrains the process that you've just talked about. Like, for example, how does an employee really, really challenge or change a supervisor's behavior? And how does an employee feel comfortable articulating the thing that you've just articulated that happened between you and a supervisor, right? So that the employee feels completely free to share and then someone's going to act upon that without the, the um, supervisor becoming punitive. That's what I mean when I say that it's like the power differences in organizations make it very difficult for you to execute on this DEI level. Because people can be punished for actually acknowledging the truth of what's happening in the environment. When I was thinking about it, I was like, well, what's the structure? Is there a structural, is there a structure that would allow for um, better utilization of white people in these spaces? I mean, like, it's horrible because I hate these things. Like, why should I have to do an anonymous thing? But 
like an anonymous what like complaint box or something yeah you know what i mean i hate those. that's all such bullshit right it's like, it's like what it's are you such supposed bullshit. to do that? yeah it's like can we <laughs> I mean, can you, can you have... I mean, it's like you go to work and there's some sort of weird lottery system. You put something <laughs> in a box and you pull it out and like, we're going to deal with this today. That doesn't, it doesn't feel like what adults should be doing. And wh- what I want to say is like, I think that it's important if we think about these things as structural, then it's less of a kind of personality and less of a kind of um, your fault, I think, space where people tend to fall into. Like... Can't you then say to yourself, okay, well, we want to do more around DEI. How are some, what are some of the structures that are in place in our organizations that make this impossible? And can we set that question alone would take some boards and organizations like years to come around to, to be honest with themselves about. I mean, can't they be honest with their numbers? They could definitely be honest with their diversity numbers. And they could definitely be um, more, you know what I mean? Like you could, like, that's why I thought it was really important to separate those three terms out so you can see where you could move the needle on different ones, right? Like you could be super intentional about how you ensure that people feel inclusive. Because I think in many ways what we're talking about is a little bit of the inclusivity thing, right? So it's like, how do people feel like they can make moves within an organization regardless of their, their, their ranking or their status, because we can have a perfectly intentional and wonderful dialogue and working environment. And if the boss comes in and says, I hate this, it all goes away. Mm-hmm. That's how much sure. power that person Absolutely. Has. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so that's partially, I think for me, that's part of the inclusivity question is how do people, how do you let, how do you really allow people to have access to power in spaces where they can control some of, the outcomes of the things that you're demanding. That's super difficult. Well, again, I mean, the more we talk, like, again, I I would say that probably needs to come from the board level of an organization where the board needs to, I mean, the board is ultimately responsible for passing policies. Now, we know in practice, I think both in the nonprofit world and in the corporate world, boards tend to defer quite a bit to the current, you know, CEO. Yeah. and that's problematic. It's problematic in lots of ways, right? Like we could look at a lot of corporate malfeasance that happens just in a financial <laughs> perspective and say like, where were the boards, right? But like if a, if a board really took it on, like they can pass a policy that says when we recruit for certain positions, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. When we, you know, make certain pol- – like when if you're going to allow certain, you know, employees to, you know, to bring their dog to work or to have some benefit, like here's here are the ways in which that needs to be accessible to all. That can be done at a board level. It's just our boards don't tend to operate like that. They certainly don't because I think one of the things I find is that I, in many nonprofits I've worked with, the board is really hands off in a lot of ways, and, and the totally out of touch. And, and that's why, out of that's touch, why yep. people pick that board. Yep. <laughs> you know, whoever started that organization picked a board, and they wanted them to be less involved. And this isn't every organization, but no, this is my no. experience. No, it's totally my experience where the board really hands a lot off to the ED or the CEO, and so really what you end up having is like the board is just a shorthand for the ED. And, um, and so the ED isn't really, I mean, I hate to use the term, but they aren't really policed in many, in strong ways. You yeah, just, no, that's really absolutely It's difficult true. to have a very active and engaged board. But I mean, like, how about, like, you both, you both run organizations. Um, how do you all pay attention to those things in intentional ways? Like, how do you, how do you try to create that intentionality in the space? Or you guys have run organizations in the past? Well, what what I tried to do, and this is gonna, in this conversation might sound weak because it's not, it's not gonna fundamentally address the things that we're talking about. But I tried to have a group of people that was formal, that included people from across the organization at every level. Um, you know, from in terms of having managers and having folks who weren't managers and making sure it was like a truly diverse group. Um, I did I made sure. No one was compelled to do it because that doesn't work great. Um, and that, you know, that took some real work to try to, like, recruit people to do it. And I actually, I did try to involve the board because I thought it was important that the work would continue, even if, you know, even if I wasn't around anymore, which ultimately that, you know, I wasn't around anymore. And I, I made sure that we brought in folks who could train us, like experts who knew about this, this stuff. 
those are the things I did. And, you know, we had regular meetings. I made sure it continued to happen. When, when issues came up, like a real issue within the organization, I tried to make sure the group was empowered to respond to it. And again, like I tried to not lead all the time and have other people lead. Those are the different things that I did. But again, I would not sit here and tell you like we, I mean, I think we made progress, but would I say we made a ton of progress? No. Would I say that things were substantially more equitable as a result of the group? I don't, you know, just being honest, like I don't think so. <laughs> I find, I find personally that in spaces where there's too many of one type of person, I get really nervous. Mm-hmm. And so usually when I'm in groups or I'm leading groups and I just look around like who's at the table and I ask myself, why are these people around the table? How they get to be decision makers? And then I'll usually put that back on the group. Like, how did you all arrive here? How did we all get here? I have to say when I'm in certain spaces and I say to myself, why aren't like if I'm the only black person in the space, I look around and I say, why is why aren't there more black people here? And it's inevitable that I there will come a point in time where maybe two months in, a, a week in, a couple of days in, I nod to myself and I go, that's why there are no black people here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's usually because there are just a lot of informal policies at play, like a lot of informal relationships Mm -hmm. around hiring, a lot of informal relationships around um, who gets to participate in certain activities. It's just, it's really a friendship network. That's what Mm -hmm. you start to realize. It's like, this is a friends network. And like most people who, when you look at their friendship groups, which is the big key, right? They always say the big giveaway is like, when you go to look at someone's wedding, and you see who are in their intimate spaces and you go, hmm, okay. Um, that usually is a real reflection in the workspace. And so that's a really interesting question that you pose, Chris, about sort of like unmasking the process a little bit more for people, having them be a lot more self-conscious and self-aware about what choices they've actively been making all along. Like if there is a new post, how are you letting people know about that new post? Um, <laughs> like, are you just sending it to a group that you know, and then letting that group vet, and then it's going to be the same circle all over again? Right. Or are you really being deliberate about bringing in new people? And then also when you bring in a new person that then has a completely new point of view and a new way of doing business, how hospitable are you? How does, yeah, how does, how does the group process that and why? Oof. Really unmasking people's process and white people, um, yeah, you, uh, <laughs> White people have a tendency to feel that it's really aggressive when they hear a point of view or something that maybe they don't agree with or they it wasn't a they weren't aware of it because white people are terrified of being called a racist. Yeah. And it's it's just so much to have to work through as a person of color. I just wish white people would do their own goddamn work, Jason. I, <laughs> I mean when I think of the different things I could do at any given moment, why would I want to do that kind of work? No. Yep. Um, no it, but you know what? There's a real truth to that, right? There's totally real truth. No, that's that's so real for millions of people. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll leave it there. Uh, white people keep trying. And as always, <laughs> no, no, you know what? I'm being totally serious. I'm being totally serious. White people keep trying. Don't rely on people of color to save you. Uh, figure your own freaking shit out. Do not expect people of color to do your labor for you. Everyone's working. Everyone's working tirelessly, including you. Okay, so let's move to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Uh, Jason, I heard an episode of Radio Lab, another NPR show, actually produced by WNYC, and they talked about. I'm actually curious if you two heard of this. I had never heard of it. There was a British game show called Golden Balls. Do you hear okay. of this? No. <laughs> oh, but no, I'm I'm strapped in and ready to go. Let's go. <laughs> it's it's not what you think, although knowing the British, of course, they were thinking. It about could be. That's why I'm ready. It, it's like a gambling show where each person could decide whether they were going to split the pot of money or try to steal the pot of money. If they both said split, they would actually split it 50-50. If they both said steal, I think nobody got anything. Um, but if one said steal and the other one said split, the one who said steal would get everything. So ah, it, that's a horrible lesson. Well, this is a, this is an old 
kids play this game. It's like, uh, anyway, go ahead. I'm familiar well, was, with this. It was just, it was fascinating. The, the episode, and the episode wasn't just about this, but um, they specifically talked about what, what they would do is they'd have the people talk and, you know, like try to convince each other as to what to do. And uh, I'll just say, like, the, the, the episode talks about this one guy who said, look, I'm going to put steel, but then I'm going to give you half. So, um, so then why don't we both just say share? What? <laughs> and that's what the guy kept saying. And the guy was uh, like, no, I'm telling you, no matter what you say, I'm doing steel. And it was, it's really good. I definitely recommend it. It was so good. It's like a psychological experiment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Really like, good. Golden balls. Golden Jason ball. endorses golden balls. <laughs> Trisha? I've had this book in my possession for, I'd say, maybe a half a year. Circumstances happened, I think, mostly the Botham Jean situation and the hugging. And I was like, I need I need a different idea about religion. I can't take this kind of religion. I can't take this religious message. So finally, I pulled out A Black Theology of Liberation by James Cone, which um, came out, I think, over 40 years ago. Um, more so now, I think, because it was in the 70s. But it was the most thrilling read. I've never enjoyed reading a book. I haven't enjoyed reading a book like that in such a long time. I, I was reading it on a flight back home. And I just absolutely adored it. Why? Because for him, the, his central thesis is that you can't call what you're doing religion if you are not on the side of the oppressed. Because Jesus showed up and he didn't hang out with the rich people. He hang out with the oppressed. So that's kind of his signal that that's what your religion should be. So it was just this kind of like interestingly raged, like righteous rage that I loved reading. Because he was just like, no, we do not want a religion where black people are hugging their oppressors. No, that is not what we are searching for. So I thoroughly recommend it enjoyed it i marked it all up i want to read everything he's written and i've had the book for months but just didn't feel the need to it and suddenly i it filled the hole that i wanted it to fill which is like i need to find out who's practicing black liberation theology now and go to that church that's what <laughs> that's what i discovered so um highly recommend that's the kind of religion i can stand by it might have even convinced you chris <laughs> i mean <laughs> Let's not get mad. He, he got religious when Rosani said religion is you can get whatever you want. Chris was like, I'm, I'm in. Listen, <laughs> if there's one thing I will always worship, it's my ability to get whatever I want whenever I want it. Well, I, you know, I always want a radical theology. I really do. I really do. And so, But, you know, once, once – this is a whole other thing. But once theology gets – so I, after a while, I'm sort of like, well, is this still a religion or is it just like – a, a motivating thought is it sort of more of a philosophy no, that's what was lovely about him you know because what he was saying is that in some ways in terms of I, let's be honest he was accusing white scholar white religious leaders of actually being more theoretical in their approach to religion he's like if you believe in the christ that we all know about you should be marching on the streets with the civil rights movement any religious leader should be out there on the streets with the most vulnerable that's, you know, so he was very much about the fact that religion in some sense was away from people, away from the real lives of people. It's really Let's um, read more and then maybe Jason and I will read some of it and then we'll come back and talk about it. I've been talking about religion a lot lately, but I have like you know deep, what? Read that. deep seat issues with what you're saying. I just, I just I have know. a lot of opinions. Okay. So my recommendation is going to be super quick. We've mm -hmm. talked about 16, 19. Yep the 1619 Project on this podcast before. Um, I am proud and happy to announce that there's a 1619 podcast put out by the New York Times hosted by Nicole Hannah-Jones and everyone should be listening to it right now. Stop listening to this podcast and immediately go listen to that. It's fantastic. Please subscribe to it. It's awesome. Or do both. Um, no, actually forget that one. Just listen to ours. <laughs> I'll just summarize everything she says like in, in a two minute. That's fine. Don't waste your time. It's okay. No, but seriously, listen to it. No. <laughs> You're not the only convert. I've heard a lot of people say that. About What's that? that? You're not the only convert. People have been like, lathering themselves up about that podcast. I mean, it's, it's just such good stuff. Like it's such a good conversation. I think it's something that we should all be talking about more and 
could just the history of this country needs to be talked about every single day because the only way that we're going to defeat white supremacy is if we finally fully accept the history of this country and how we got to be here and how, how all the players today um all those pieces were put into play hundreds of years ago and that's how you've gotten your status on the board that's it you didn't pull yourself up by your goddamn bootstraps that's not how that worked so uh, that sounds like a ringing endorsement for people saying absolutely not yeah well you know what <laughs> anyone who says absolutely not isn't listening to this podcast anyway oh all right you two um i've got to get on with my day i've got huge things planned huge big you want to share day? no not really i I'm not really doing anything. I've got like one appointment that I'm going to come home and nap. I'm going to be really honest. I've been so tired lately. So that's that's my day. So good luck. Be, you all can be productive. I'm going to nap in the afternoon. A 12-year-old said to me the other day, why would anyone take naps? It's such a waste of time. And I was like, girl. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to record this and then send you this file 10 years from now. 10 years from now. <laughs> Learn to love the nap. Are you crazy? We get through the day. All right. And on that note, everyone, goodbye. Bye. Bye.